A group of former intelligence employees wanted to publish books about their time in government, but they weren't too happy when their former agencies made redactions. Twice they took their grievances to court, and twice the judges sided with the government. For details, Federal News Network's Jonathan Tercasio spoke with national security lawyer Kel McClanahan. One of the things that happened in this case that isn't that common is most cases about pre-publication review are brought by a person who is in the middle of the process, who is trying to get information uh, released or not censored or however you want to put it. And it is generally specific to that document, that, that book, that article, whatever it is. This case was more of a broadside against the system as you know, the, the distinction was that these people weren't saying my book is being held up and I think it should not be held up or it's being censored. It should not be censored. Instead, they're saying the fact that we're having to do this is unconstitutional, that it is too arbitrary. It is too wild westy that each agency can sort of make its own rules and those rules differ wildly both in how they're written and, and how they're executed. And so to that end, this precedent isn't that the harmful or effective, it might be a better word, where it's not going to have a huge effect on a random person's efforts to get published beyond sort of solidifying the idea that the system is okay. And, and I will say that the, the system is not okay. The pre-publication review system is completely broken. And the allegations that these plaintiffs made were completely on point. The problem is that they were trying to show that because this system, which in theory is arguably constitutional, but the court's the judges kind of got a little tangled up in the scope of it and focused on the okay part to then sort of make a leap of logic to say that, well, because each of these rules has these okay provisions, the entire rules are okay. And that, I believe, was a mistake. One of the key examples that they gave was that they cited a DOD regulation for the idea of only withholding classified information. Well, the problem was that that was just one regulation, one part of one regulation in a, an entire community, and that it wasn't even consistently followed in DOD. And it definitely wasn't representative of the policies across the government. But because they found that one part that sounded reasonable, they then said, and yada, 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 therefore it is okay. What you have here is you have a ruling that will basically cause the agencies to double down in their defense of not changing anything. However, it won't have much of an effect on the normal cases they see, like was the third line on page 14 of this manuscript properly uh, redacted? And that is why I say it's effective in that it precludes, at least in the Fourth Circuit, it precludes a lot of people from making arguments about the arbitrariness of any particular regulation, but it doesn't necessarily torpedo anybody's chances of winning a case. The plaintiffs argued that these processes, they don't come out in a timely manner. It takes months and months for them to redact information, that they redact information that's already in the public domain. 
And this, for me, yeah. brings into question the significance of how necessary are pre-publication reviews in protecting national security interests. So what you have here is a disconnect between the idea of pre-publication review and the execution of pre-publication review. The idea of pre-publication review is sound, that there, are, you know, the First Amendment is not absolute. It has been found to preclude many things, not least of which are you do not have a First Amendment right to go out and tell national security secrets, to tell classified information. That is the theory. The practice, however, gets bogged down in basically bad agency behavior. And this isn't to say that all pre-pub review offices are bad. Many of them are quite fine. You know, many of them are quite conscientious. But even in their rules, you will see things like the CIA is a good example. The CIA has a, a literal double standard in how it handles pre-publication review. It handles pre-publication review for former employees differently than it handles them for current employees. For former employees, they purport to only review the document for classified information. That's it. For current employees, they review it for classified information and what they call, quote-unquote, appropriateness. And appropriateness is whether or not the release of the information would in any way interfere with the CIA's ability to do exactly what it's doing on any given day, which basically boils down, down to whether or not it would affect the CIA. So if you're a current CIA employee and you were to write an op-ed that's critical of the CIA, they can redact that entire thing because then they would be getting phone calls, criticizing them. They might have to appear for a hearing. They might have to you know, go do God knows what, and it would interfere with their ability to continue doing the thing that you're criticizing them for. And therefore, it's not appropriate, quote unquote. If you then retire and you write the same thing, you will magically discover that that previously unclassified information has somehow coincidentally been classified by the time you sue them for permission to release it. And it gets insane in how this is carried out. There was a case a few years ago uh, by Tony Schaefer, who wrote a book called Operation Darkheart. And Operation Darkheart was one of the few cases that the general public got a peek inside what happened in pre review, where due to a miscommunication in the process, he published his book. He did not think he was violating his NDA, his non-disclosure agreement. He thought he had complied with the rules. He published his book, and then the DA got very upset, and they said that they had not been given a chance to review it, and they uh, sued him, and there was a settlement agreement reached where the Department of Defense would buy up every single copy in the first run of the publication. It had not actually hit the bookshelves yet, and they bought up this entire first run and destroyed it. What they didn't do was try to recall any of the sample copies that had been sent out to reviewers. They didn't even make an effort. So all of a sudden, you had about 20 copies of this book floating around that the government was screaming at the top of its lungs contained super secret classified information. And those books started going on eBay for like $2,000 a piece. Well, then he published a second edition. And the second edition had all of the redactions that he had worked out with the DA. But people would go and compare side by side the first edition and the second edition to see what had been classified. 
And the things that were classified were insanely stupid. Uh, for instance, one of the things that was classified or was marked as classified was the fact that SIGINT, S-I-G-I-N-T, was an acronym that meant signals intelligence. This is something that every single person who's ever studied anything about intelligence knows. And yet that line in the glossary was redacted in the second edition because the DIA had said that its release would cause identifiable harm to the national security of the United States. When you have examples like that, you understand why people like these litigants said whatever system allowed this to happen, and it happens all the time, is broken. And since the executive branch is not going to fix it on its own, it falls to the court to make it. Unfortunately, they lost that bid. You know, it's interesting. And, and there is a facet of the court case that I think is worth exploring, and that is that these former employees are not treated as reporters but as coming from a place of authority because they used to work in these agencies and because of that, they had access to information that could be considered classified. What do you think about that, them being treated not as someone uh, reporting on information or relating their experiences, but coming from a place of authority even though they no longer work for these agencies? So that is one of the underlying precepts of the pre-publication review system is the idea that it doesn't matter what you do, it only matters where you did it. And it's not a completely frivolous idea, honestly. It's the idea that human beings can't always trace where they came up with an idea. And so what if the reason that he wrote a report or wrote an article about this particular aspect of some operation, what if the only reason he thought that was significant was because he had run across a piece of classified information about something related five years ago? In theory, it's not an unsound idea. In practice, it's pretty insane. You know, I have a case right now where there's a client who wrote a book that went to the Air Force for pre-pub review. And it was a history of strategic air command. And it got reviewed and then it got published. It was not a New York Times bestseller. It was a dry academic history. Then he writes another book. And the second book, forcing to basically the same documents that he had sourced in the first book, he basically writes a more definitive treatise. It's longer, it goes into more detail, it fills in some of the gaps, and it is currently being reviewed by three separate components at DOD after already passing through Air Force review because somebody said that that was appropriate, and that decision is completely unappealable. When he had a clearance, he didn't deal with any of this stuff. You know, he did not touch anything related to the stuff he's writing books about now. And yet now you have four different pre-pub review offices going over his work with a fine-tooth comb just to make sure that something might not have been sourced from something that was sourced from something that might have had to do with some classified operation that neither he nor anybody he talked to had ever heard of. And when there's so many layers to this pre-publication review process, one instance in this particular case that we're talking about, one of the former employees from ODNI said that he had almost 80% of his original reactions allowed to get published when he appealed. This brings to mind for me the subjectivity right. of these reviews. So really my question is, how efficient are these appeals processes and what can be said about the subjectivity of all these different layers that go into getting clear to, to write and, and say this stuff? I'm going to hit the appeal process first 
This is a process that differs from agency to agency and generally from person to person. The fact that at ODNI, this person had 80% of the stuff reversed on appeal does not surprise me in the slightest because most of ODNI pre-call review is done by ODNI or CIA. And while I don't have a ton of experience with ODNI, I can tell you that CIA, they take the approach when in doubt, redact. If the author cares enough about it, they'll appeal it and it'll be a problem for the appeal board. So the fact that the appeal process reversed 80% is a good thing for the appeals process. It shows that they are doing, at least in that case, a conscientious appeal review, but it speaks volumes about the fact that that had to be appealed in the first place. And that, I think, is the problem. And that's the problem that they were trying to identify in this case, and that it is completely up to pretty much the whim of the initial reviewer whether or not to redact something. I am confident, although I don't know this for sure, because I haven't worked as a reviewer, but I'm confident that if you clear something to go out and it was classified, you probably get dragged into the supervisor's office and yelled at if not fired. I am equally confident that there is no negative repercussions if you redact something and you shouldn't. And that is the problem right there. There's a great incentive to over-redact. There's a no disincentive to over-redact. And when people are writing books about how awesome my time at the CIA was, and those are getting cleared in six months. And people are writing books about how awful my time at the CIA was, and they're having to sue six years later. You tell me there's not a problem there. What can former federal employees do to combat or reform this system? This has been something that's been a running battle for as long as I've been a lawyer and before that. Courts, if you do dare to take your case to court, are overwhelmingly differential to the agencies in pre review. You basically have to have a smoking gun showing that they did something wrong with them admitting that they did something wrong. Otherwise, the court's going to defer to the agency. What you can do is a little bit of tradecraft. I mean, it's funny, but I have to teach my clients basic intelligence tradecraft in order to get some of their things through pre-pub review. Things like if you are going to be listing names of people you worked with, do not put the name in the body of your text. Do not write, I met with John Smith, and then he and I went to see Janet Smith. Say, I met with person one, and then he and I went to see person two. And then at the end, give a legend. You have to footnote it like you're writing a scholarly article. Because then you make their job easier to go and check and see if what you source it has been publicly released. It's public information. If it has, then they move on to the next thing. These are not evil masterminds working in these offices. Most of them are honestly trying to do their job. They will appreciate anything you can do to help them do that job better. So keep meticulous notes of your sourcing. This does get into territory when you're writing things of fiction. You have to put works of fiction through people review. You have to put things you are lying about through people review, which is sort of hilarious because I am a CIA officer and I make something up and they allow that to go through. That could be viewed as an admission by them that that exists, even if I made it up. It could also be viewed as an admission that that does not exist. 
And so if you're writing nonfiction, source things. If you're writing fiction, just work around it. It is a system that is fundamentally unfair. It is a system that is fundamentally broken as it currently exists. This ruling will make it harder for people who are trying to change the system to do so, because now any time that we say, you know, if you don't change the system, we're going to make you, they'll just hold up the case and say, come on, you already tried that. The good news is it's just a Fourth Circuit opinion. This is ultimately going to have to go to the Supreme Court if the agencies don't voluntarily sort of fix the system. You will often hear people talking about how awful this opinion is and how it is just a death blow to uh, pre-probe review reform or to people trying to get through the system with some degree of fairness. It's not the end of reasonable pre-probe review as we know it. It's a setback. But if enough people in enough places, and this includes Congress, Congress really needs to step up on this, decide that it is being abused, it will get fixed. But it's going to take effort and mobilization and coordination to get there. Kel McClanahan is executive director of the nonprofit law firm National Security Counselors and professor at the George Washington University Law School. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And you can hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. 
but that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that, I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect 
perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. With Verizon, you can now get a private 5G network so you can do more than connect your business. You can make it even smarter. Now ports can know where every piece of cargo is and where it's going. Robots can predict breakdowns and order their own replacement parts. And retailers can get ahead of the fashion trend of the day with a new line tomorrow. With a Verizon private 5G network, you can get more agility and security, giving you more control of your business. We call this enterprise intelligence. From the network America relies on, Verizon. 5G ultra wideband available in select areas. Pre-qualification required for private 5G network. Terms apply. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.